Bob Murphy Show, episode 291. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Today is going to be another out-of-the-box episode where I am trying to facilitate conversations with people who disagree with me strongly, but are at least reasonable. And so Douglas Robert fits the bill. A little of backstory, we actually recorded this interview a while ago, so I can't remember if we told the story on air, as it were. I think I did get into a little bit, but just in case, I'll tell the version here. There are a lot of MMT people that, in my view, are a bit smug and difficult to talk to, and it's sort of like not worth talking to it that once you get past their first few bullet points, like they don't take it further. They just keep repeating it because they assume what, if you don't see the MMT logic after my first three bullet points, then what's the point of continuing this? And I erroneously believed that Douglas was such a person. And then he made a video responding to my stuff about the yield curve because he doesn't think there's going to be an impending recession or he doesn't think there there is a re- <laughs> an impending recession. And I kind of, oh, I'll check this out. And I was like, oh, no, this guy actually... He's very fair and reasonable. So anyway, that's kind of the backstory for how Douglas ended up on the Bob Murphy show that I thought it would be useful to take a true blue MMT and have us hash out what our different predictions are about a possible recession. So here's his official bio. Douglas is an MMT who melds data science and deep learning with MMT principles to delve into its practical application in finance and markets. He hosts the YouTube channel MMT Macro Trader and shares insights on Twitter at the handle at MMT Macro Trader. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Douglas Robert. Douglas, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. As I would have said in the intro that I <laughs> pre-recorded, but it might not be people will hear it later. I'll, I will do it later. It's I had misjudged you, so that's partly why I want to have you on the show, because I felt bad that there's a lot of people on Twitter that espouse the MMT perspective, and they're they're pretty confident in their views, and so sometimes that can rub people the wrong way, and I had just, there's a bunch of those guys, and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to gain anything, and then you had said that you did a whole podcast episode of your show responding to my views on the yield curve, and so I gave it a chance, and then like five minutes into it, I was like, all right, this guy, he's actually being trying to be fair he's not trying to misrepresent me this is this is worth going back and forth just to get our views out so in any event what baby's dad in dirty dancing when he misjudges patrick swayze and he admits it so i that's what i'm doing right now are you calling me patrick swayze then is that the <laughs> i am yes and i don't know i guess it's your buddies that got the other girl pregnant or something the, okay I, I was a wee <laughs> lad when that movie came out but yeah thanks for having me on thanks for also checking out the video that i did too i, I did my best to relearn austrian economics and the austrian business cycle theory to hopefully steel man it for that video and it sounds like it at least resonated enough and i, well, yeah, I, I guess yeah. here we are Re- yeah, you didn't to debate, discuss. Right. Yeah, you didn't certainly you didn't say anything that I thought was a howler in terms of no, that's not what. And 
even if you had, I could tell you it wouldn't have been on purpose. You were definitely yeah, trying yeah. to. So I like that. And apropos of that, can you just briefly, I, you had mentioned to me offline how you actually you have been exposed to these views. You went to a yeah, school yeah, where yeah. stuff. So do you mind just telling yeah. the quick version yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I went to school at uh, Northwood University here in Michigan. And uh, Northwood University is it's right in there. <laughs> it's right in their mission statement that they're a pro-business, pro-free enterprise, pro-free market school and all the teachers actually have to sign some sort of statement that says they're only going to teach pro uh, pro free enterprise standpoints from economics and they won't say anything that that you'd hear in those other schools so it, within within kind of the economics that I did learn and in the discussions we had in those economics classes the Austrian view was well understood I, I think our curriculum was probably like a Chicago school in, in terms of a monetarist standpoint but Hayek, it was probably anti-Keynesian at the very least. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And certainly in, in terms of kind of the friend groups that I hung out in and what we would discuss in economics, it, it, we were, I, yeah, it was very Austrian in the way that it was. And I've certainly listened to my fair share of Bob Murphy in the past and the other guys on Mises. Mm -hmm. so it, it's been a long time since I've lived in that world from a, a school of thought sort of way, or I've even tried to apply it. But 10, 15 years ago, that's where I was at. So now I feel like I have to say, I have failed you, Anakin. Guy, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So uh, joking aside, so did you, did you, were you a true believer and then MMT oh, yeah, otherwise, yeah. or did yeah. you never really get into the, you didn't care for the Austrian stuff in the beginning? No, I was, I was an absolute true believer. If there's anyone who knows me from that time frame, uh, uh somehow stumbles across this, uh, they can absolutely tell you that's, oh, okay. Here, here's how much of a true believer I am. I'll, I'll give you the story that will tell you that I was a true believer. Okay. I, I really got into to, to wanting to learn how to actively invest around 2007, 2008, great financial crisis. Oh, if only I would have seen this coming. When in, in that circle at the time, Peter Schiff was the big name, right? He was the big name you would listen to. And so I was young. I, I bet... Yeah, I would have been about 23, 24, maybe had 10,000 in savings. We started our family pretty young as well. So we had a kid at that time. And I went and took the 10,000 worth of savings we had and bought gold with it, right? In oh, I thought you were going to say you shorted it, the dollar. Okay. I did not short the dollar. No, no, no. I, I actually bought physical gold, right? Okay. It, that is what it was sometime in 2008. I think I, I averaged in. This has nothing to do with how good of a trader I was. It was just purely coincidental that Peter Schiff was telling me that the, the dollar was going to go to zero and, and gold was going to replace everything. So I, our life savings wasn't gold for about three, four years. And just pure, again, coincidence, we just needed the money in September of 2011, right before gold ends up ends up tanking for five, six years there. Really, the first trade I ever made <laughs> was in physical gold, and, uh, and it worked out pretty darn well. So that's how dedicated I was to the Austrian, the Austrian view, if you will. Oh, okay, yeah, because I was going to say, gold did keep going up for a while. No, I, I thought absolutely. you were going to say... You got one of my greatest trades. You said, then you swore eternal hostility to the Austrians from that point. No, no, it's one of my greatest trades of all time. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, you see where I? Okay, you had said that shows how much of a true believer. Okay, all right. So then, what was it? Much of a true. So Peter Schiff. So they're not only right, but they're giving you profits and snub us. You turn your back on us. So what was it that made you? I did. Is it a kind of thing like we're Newtonian mechanics, and then someone else opened your eyes to special relativity? Is it yeah, like kind of. Yeah. I don't know if I'd put you in Newtonian mechanics, but yeah, we'll get to that point. A actually, what it was is part of the reason, one, we needed some cash from the goal, but two, I also just wanted to actually start trading, right? I wanted to actively trade. So I turned that 10,000 into, let's just say, 20,000, whatever it turned out to be. And I'm like, hey, hey, wife, can I st <laughs> essentially start day trading? And yeah, she doesn't know any better. Sure. And we'll spend the, the rest of the money. I really wanted to start understanding how markets work. And it was right about that time where I, I started to at least understand that, hey, there's 
there's this thing called macroeconomics, like a kind of applied macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. And you can do uh, kind of econometrics and understand how the markets work. And I really thought that, hey, I, if this Austrian stuff is right and no one else is getting it, there's got to be some mispricing here. Mm -hmm. some, there's got to be a way to really model this to exploit what the rest of the market doesn't understand. And it was in that context of me trying to figure this out that I eventually ran across MMT. It was actually, I don't mean to pick on you here, but it was actually a debate you had with Warren Mosler. I could have sworn I saw it come out on the day in June of 20, 2013, but I think it was a little bit It was a little bit later than that that I ended up watching. It might have even been all the way into 2014. But I ended up seeing that debate. And there were a few things that Warren said in there that, that were it really piqued my interest. One of them we'll definitely get into. It, it was the interest rate thing, fixed versus floating exchange regime. And then he kept talking about this private sector savings and what government spends that becomes private sector savings. And I don't know if that's exactly how he, how he phrased it during that debate. But yeah, I, I remember listening to that. I, I remember the day I, I listened to that debate. I was at the gym, stayed on the treadmill the entire time, just listening to that. And then I went to the office and, and I, I consumed some more of what these MMTers are saying. I, eventually, it, it realized, I realized, okay, there's this thing called sectoral balances. And from, from their perspective, the government is spending, that's creating uh, net private savings, net financial assets for the private sector. And immediately, my thought went to, wait a second, we, we, are, we save in stocks in the U.S. because there's a huge tax advantage to do so. There should be some correlation between government spending and the stock market. And, and however good I was at statistics back then, I look it up and yeah, lo and behold, there's a pretty good, uh, there's a pretty good track record of government spending and uh, government spending in stocks. And from that point forward, I really dug into the, the MMT side and consistently from what I could tell all the way up to today, the MMT story explains what we actually see or helps understand, it helps us understand what we actually see in markets playing out. Okay. I should probably say at this point before I forget, just a sort of disclaimer, that orthodox Austrian economists would stress and say Austrian economics does not give you tools to invest in the stock market and things like that. So there are people like Walter Block is always real adamant about this when we're at Mises University and we have the panel discussions and there's five of us up there. And some kid will usually ask, do you guys have any tips for how to invest as an Austrian? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so some of us will say some things. And then Walter Block usually will, if he's there in that panel, will say not only no, but also like to clarify, no, just because we're Austrian economy, there's a sharp dichotomy that, that doesn't give us any special advantage. So I just, I want to yeah. make sure I officially say, I'm not saying it's you just to the listener. No, 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 that's fair. That's that, fair. Yeah. That I don't. Go ahead. Can you elaborate on that? Go ahead and elaborate on that. I'd be interested in my follow-up question would just be why. So I'm not, I, I take a more middle of the road approach. I would yeah. say. Assuming Austrian economics is true, especially what it has to say about the business cycle, I would say surely other things equal knowing a true theory of what causes or what drives the business cycle can only help you, right? So I would say knowledge of Austrian economics is, I was going to say necessary, but insufficient, but not even that, because you could imagine somebody who has a faulty theory from my perspective of the business cycle, but yet they know the details or if they invest. So I think partly what we're going to get into, Douglas, here is there's going to be some yeah, things yeah. where I'm going to say, oh, you're noticing correlations that yep, are yep. usually true, but it's not for the reason you think. And it's yep, only yep. very rarely that if you invested based on that, it's going to blow up in your face. You, you yep, get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say my point, folks, is not to say. Austrian economists are better investors than MMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it could be yeah. in practice that the stuff you guys follow 
Is there, and you're, you sounds like obviously you're pretty good at data analytics and there's no reason an Austrian economist per se would have any advantage in that. So advantage and skill. Okay. Okay. Maybe let's talk just a little bit about the sectoral balance thing and then we'll yeah, yeah, jump yeah. into yeah. the yield curve stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is probably where it needs to start. Listeners understand the perspective that I'm coming from. Sectoral balances, pretty simple idea here is that if someone's in surplus, someone's in deficit. And if someone's in deficit, there's got to be a surplus. Ba- basic accounting. Mm-hmm. And you can slice up uh, sectors in any, in any way you want to, right? It, it, there's nothing special about sectoral balances per se. But in, in uh, post-Keynesian uh, heterodox economics in the MMT world, it, it quickly got sliced up into, and, and for obvious reasons, public, private, and then rest of the world. So those are the three slices mm-hmm. that the, the sectoral balance ends up looking at. And the simple logic is that, is that the private sector, non-government, when I say private sector, it's, it's us, that the, the private sector will be... In a surplus, if the have a surplus, if the government sector is in deficit. Now, if the government sector isn't in deficit and there were still to be a private sector surplus, it's because it's coming from the rest of the world, right? You're exporting more goods than you're importing, and then you're going to get net financial assets. So the surplus of net financial assets would come from the rest of the world. Okay. So to be clear, when you say private sector, you mean the domestic private sector? Yeah, correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that's the basis of sectoral balances. And, and it was really from that framework, this is really what hit me. And I actually, I, I emailed after that debate and after you know, a couple months of figuring this out, I emailed Warren Mosler and, and I asked him, I'm like, listen, th- this, is, this logic is correct. If the government spends and we save and we're, we have this incentive to effectively save in stocks, right? invest in stocks, then there should be this correlation, right? And that's exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah. You know, Warren Mosler was a bond trader. I, I don't know what he ever did in stocks. And so that, that was the thought. And that was from there then what I developed, the tools that I would develop to understand the, the business cycle, the trading cycle, if you will. And I look a lot more at stocks. And I understand stocks are not correlated with the real economy for the most part. <laughs> stocks are going to go up if GDP is going up, as we're seeing. And stocks will go down if, if, the, if the economy contracts. And so the sectoral balance framework gives you an understanding of how at least markets should, how at least markets should operate. And if you look over time, if, if at least one of the sectors is running a deficit, you get an increase. Uh, one, of the, one of the sectors is running a deficit relative to the private sector, or if the private sector itself runs a deficit, you're going to get an increase and you're going to get an increase in growth. And if that reverses, you're going to get a decrease in growth when you get all three aligned to to contract at the same time. Okay. What you're talking about here, just understanding the MMT perspective on sectoral balances would give somebody an edge relative to someone who didn't know that stuff in terms of what knowing when like the S&P 500 is likely to grow at a higher than normal rate versus when it might slow down or even go down you pick particular stocks but like an index correct yeah yeah. so the only thing i've ever done is index stuff i i I do i I have started working with uh with a couple guys who who have developed this theory for stock specific stuff it's still i I don't really understand business balance sheet stuff that well Mm -hmm. but they do and and i think i think there's some applicable stuff you can make sense of and we can get into that It, it, it started some of that started to click not an expert on it but for me it's always just been index S&P goes up because, again, we have this massive institutional structure. We're all incentivized to save. And we're also, especially since the 1980s, 1990s, we all just buy the S&P, right? You buy the S&P, 
and you buy 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, whatever it is that you are in terms of your kind of 401k split that they tell mm-hmm. you to do. And that gets funneled into the exact same companies, right? It's it's not a good system. I'm not saying it's a, it's, this is what I want in markets to be, but it's the system. It's the system that it is. And so, yeah, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Okay. So for our purposes, and then to keep it more towards like macroeconomic theories as opposed to you're fine. Yeah, we, this, like, can, this can extrapolate. Yeah, you're fine if we just focus on. I get how the implications for investing, but you're. Yeah. For our purposes in this discussion, you can. We can just say, okay, is it true, or is it? You know, this is what we're yeah. exploring. That the sectoral balance approach gives insight into when the economy is likely to expand or when it's likely to contract. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, yeah, okay. that works. That's a fair. That's okay. a fair way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and so. Tell me if this is right. So you're saying, oh, like the Orthodox view, not just Austrians, but standard Republican conservative types, conventional wisdom, people who are feel that they're being really responsible and the adults in the room would say things like, oh, the government needs to, we can't just keep it running all this red ink. We got to balance the budget or at least bring it under control, that sort of thing in yeah. order to get our fiscal house in order. And the, or do you endorse like the standard MMT response is to say, no, actually, Maybe like on a gold standard or something that would be true, but no, the way our system is right now, it's if anything the other way around. That Stephanie Kelton said this literally, and you tell me if you agree with it. She said that their red ink is our allows yeah, us to yeah, to stay in yeah. the black or something like that. And so yeah, the yeah, idea being yeah. that if the government runs a trillion dollar deficit, the accounting flip side of that is the private sector gained a trillion dollars in net financial assets. Correct. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Let, let me add a little nuance sure, to that, too. G- and give me a second to, to elaborate on this. You made a good point, And this needs to come up in this discussion. This is really the, the biggest thing to understand out of this entire discussion. We're currently in a floating exchange regime, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that means something, right? That, that means that the only thing you can do with your dollars beyond commerce is not go claim an ounce of gold, right? The, the only thing that the state really cares about with those dollars after it circulates them through the economy is that you can pay the tax, right? That's so effectively... massively uh, oversimplifying this, right? But in a fixed exchange rate, it does matter, right? Someone eventually is on the hook wherever, whether it's the banking themselves that the dollars will be redeemable in gold, or if it ends up at the central bank, eventually someone somewhere cares Mm -hmm. (laughs) about what might be redeemed. And so the dynamics in both of those systems are essentially, I mean, I'll say polar opposites, but dynamics are very different when you analyze things under a fixed or under a floating exchange rate regime. So bringing that back to a sectoral balance view, right? What I would say is not only when the government when the government is spending is that adding net financial assets to the private sector. The government doesn't have to spend to add net financial assets to the private sector. We could also net export. That would add net financial assets to the private sector, mm-hmm. right? If none of those things are happening, there's still a way for the private sector to grow, and that's for the private sector to deficit spend itself, right? So you got a handful of paths to get to expansion in the private sector, but those are the ways that it can happen. It's, and those are important nuances to understand when then you go into, okay, let's look at growth throughout history. Why Why did we get growth this time and not this time? Why, when we were running a surplus in the 90s, did we get growth? You, uh, way to put it is someone's got to be running a deficit somewhere, right? And if if we all of a sudden decide to run surpluses, you're going to get a massive contraction, which is what we saw in 2000 and 2008 and whatnot. 
okay, so you raise a lot of things there. Just yep. to avoid people confused, fixed, like in terms of standard nomenclature, like a fixed exchange rate would people would have in mind like the dollar against other currencies. And so if, the, if they're each redeeming yeah, their currencies yeah. for a fixed weight of gold, then that kind of pins down. Strictly speaking, it, it, but it's not like a price control. This isn't for you, Douglas. I know you, but I just I yeah, don't want yep, the listeners. Yep. Sometimes people get confused. Like, how could you Austrians favor a gold standard? I thought you weren't, you were against price controls. And mm -hmm. it, when we say it like is a fixed exchange rate, it's not that if somebody traded too many, more than $4.86 for a British pound, you were going to go to jail. It was just you'd be stupid to because there'd be an arbitrage and you'd make more money back under the classical yeah. gold standard. So it's not when we say there was like a, a fixed implied fixed exchange rate between the currencies under the classical gold standard. It's not government price fixing. It's that each bank would redeem it at, the, at those ratios. And so there'd be an arbitrage if it, if it deviated too much. OK. And so when you say fixed versus floating, really, you're saying is the government on the hook for delivering gold yeah. or is there any kind yeah, of external yeah. constraint or is it really just they can exactly. issue as many dollars exactly. as they want exactly exactly and nothing yep. there's no yep. pied piper that's going to come calling it's just that might cause untoward ramifications and price inflation or whatnot but the idea is it's not oops we're gonna have a run on our gold stocks the way it would have been pre-97 yeah. okay yeah so there's, that's easy all right and then you're saying hey even if the government's running a balanced budget strictly speaking if the domestic private sector starts net exporting so we're selling more wheat in terms of the united states we're selling more wheat to japan than they are selling cars to us measured in dollar terms yeah then our net financial assets in the domestic private sector can grow so namely our claims on future japanese massive contraction um which is what we saw in 2000 and 2008 and whatnot okay so you raise a lot of things there just yep. to avoid people confused fixed like in terms of standard nomenclature, like a fixed exchange rate would people would have in mind like the dollar against other currencies. And so if the, if they're each redeeming yeah, their currencies yeah. for a fixed weight of gold, then that kind of pins down. Strictly speaking, it, it, but it's not like a price control. This isn't for you, Douglas. I know you, but I just I yeah, want the yep, listeners. Yep. Sometimes people get confused. Like, how could you Austrians favor a gold standard? I thought you weren't you were against price controls. And mm -hmm. When we say it like is a fixed exchange rate, it's not that if somebody traded too many more than four dollars and eighty six cents for a British pound, you were going to go to jail. It was just you'd be stupid to because there'd be an arbitrage and you'd make more money back under the classical gold yeah. standard. So it's not when we say there was like a, a fixed implied fixed exchange rate between the currencies under the classical gold standard. It's not government price fixing. It's that each bank would redeem it at, the, at those ratios. And so there'd be an arbitrage if it, if it deviated too much. OK. And so when you say fixed versus floating, really, you're saying is the government on the hook for delivering gold? Yeah. Or is there any kind yeah, of external yeah. constraint or is it really just they can exactly. issue as many dollars exactly. as they want? Exactly. Exactly. And nothing, yeah. there's no yeah. Pied Piper that's going to come calling. It's just that might cause untoward ramifications and price inflation or whatnot. But the idea is it's not, oops, we're going to have a run on our gold stocks the way it would have been pre-97. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's, that's easy. All right. And then you're saying... Hey, even if the government's running a balanced budget, strictly speaking, if the domestic private sector starts net exporting, so we're selling more wheat in terms of the United States, we're selling more wheat to Japan than they are selling cars to us measured in dollar terms. Yeah. Then our net financial assets in the domestic private sector can grow. So namely, our claims on future Japanese income on net can go up in a sense that's like we're sending them net exports this period and how are they paying for it? They're giving us claims and saying, we'll settle with you down the road. So like our claims on outside 
income flowing into us yeah. goes up. Okay, that makes sense. There's another aspect to that as well that's also important, right? Is that those net financial assets, right? What we either save or invest, that is also going to effectively, in a floating exchange rate, that's going to effectively capitalize the private sector, right? That that allows the banking system to operate. It's and, and this is this is again, it's going to be important when we get to the point where we eventually discuss why did this happen, why didn't this happen? Because mm-hmm. under a floating exchange, so again, under the system we have right now, the most important thing is income, right? That is, in, in, in the current system we have, banks aren't going into the vault to see what reserves they have to then loan those out. In the current system we have, it's called, it, we call it like an endogenous money system, right? Mm-hmm. So the bank, the bank is going to create the loan and they say the loans create the deposits, right? So they're not, when you put money into a bank, they're not loaning that money out, right? If I wanted to buy your house for, let's just say a half million dollars, right? And I go and get that, I go and get that mortgage, that money is being created at that point, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not taking anyone else's money. They're actually creating it. New money is actually being, new money is actually being created at that point. And in order for banks to have the necessary capital, in order for me too, the most important thing for me to have the income to do that. Cause they're going to look at that again. They, they, they're not constrained by any reserves. They're going to look and say, Hey, does Douglas have the income to purchase this home? And then I'll create the loan. It's that income that's important. Right. That's what's ultimately going to be important. However, we get it. We need savings in the system, net, net savings in the system to be effectively exceeded what the desire is. And then that becomes the income that allows that allows the the business cycle that allows the business cycle to happen. So I wanted to at least get that out there. That's an important piece, especially as I've listened and refreshed on Austrian stuff. The signal is the income in a floating exchange and a floating exchange system. Okay. Let's not forget that, but let me yeah, yeah, keep going because yeah. where I'm going, Go I think circles back into that because you said you're saying the thing that even the domestic private sector, there's a sense in which deficit spend to itself or something. I've never heard yeah, that. Yeah. And so let, let's yeah. understand what the claim. I think it makes sense. The government. And is this true? It's not so much or, or maybe like the more fundamental way that I think MMT are thinking about. It's not so much that, oh, yeah, a government deficit adds net assets. Is it more that other things equal when the government spends money? That's like an injection of money, which is also wealth into the private sector and when they tax that's siphoning it away yes and hence a deficit means by definition you're spending more so that's but it's not that the deficit per se is the thing it's that spending fills up the tank and taxing draws down and so in a given accounting period a deficit if the government's budget deficit that means they're spending more than they took out okay yeah okay okay so i get that and then so let's see i guess I'm curious about the, so yeah, there, there's a way we can define those terms or whatever that I get it's true in terms of the accounting. And then I think one element is to say, so what? That, for example, if we look at planet Earth as a whole, it's, there's no deficit or surplus, right? And yet it's not that, ah, humanity is forever doomed to not grow economically if only there were Martians out there that could impose a government on us and start deficit spending. Otherwise, humanity is stagnant like you could see that that doesn't follow and so why should i care about the sectoral balances in terms of the domestic u.s private sector if you get what i'm saying 
I don't, I don't know if I'm fully following because oh. because I, I think I think we might actually be have according to the recent Senate hearings or whatever we might actually be having Martians. Oh, we, we might. But okay, but I'm saying <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. People yeah, yeah, who are excited yeah. about was were MMT yeah. people uh, excited like finally long last Earth Earth GDP can start growing because it's been at the same level for the last six thousand years. That that doesn't follow, right? Like Earth's GDP has been growing. Yeah. So it's not that you need some external. So it's sometimes with the loose talk, like it, yeah, but it sounds I, like the MT people are saying the only way the private sector can grow, at least in the long run, is if there's a government that has an ever growing debt. And I'm saying that can't be right because the earth itself, there's not some external growing debt. And yet humanity is certainly getting richer, right? Over time. In a nominal sense, though, I, I think there would have. <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to think this through. But yeah, the, the U.S., except for, I think, a few short periods. In general, is humanity, do we have a higher standard of living now than in the year 2000 B.C.? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm. Yeah. And, is and, there <laughs> some foreign alien nation that has been running up a huge debt the whole time yeah, but to, each, to make that possible? Yeah. Yes. Some, somewhere there have been debts the whole time. Yeah. I guess I'm missing the point. Yeah. It's not clicking. Okay. Because <laughs> the um, government has humanity. Some, some sector has been running a deficit to some other sector, and that's usually the government sector to the private sector. Yeah. Okay. But, but then theoretically, suppose the government always ran a budget, bal- a balanced budget. And l- forget, let's forget the foreign trade stuff just because that we can think of it as one world government if we want or just look to me. But clearly, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. if there was nothing stopping humanity from. 2000 bc to now from okay. growing okay in theory okay. if we just draw a gate around the private sector little pockets of it could be in debt or not and okay. there's no okay. reason All that right. couldn't go on for seven thousand years since humanity as the whole has done that yeah 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 okay so in the again in the kind of the post-keynesian heterodox world right in theory we could get rid of government entirely mm-hmm. and run a purely private banking system mm-hmm. right and in fact, one of the arguments, uh, one of the one of the arguments I'll make later is is I, there's nothing stopping anybody from doing that right now. You can't do it in dollars, but you could still create a, a private banking system and mm-hmm. go at it. But you could create a private banking system, and what we would call that then is just a, a purely endogenous system. The problem is that purely endogenous system is incredibly procyclical, <laughs> and it needs someone to come in. And this is part of the, the video that I made. If, if, if anyone hasn't watched it yet, it's on my YouTube channel. But part of the video uh, was the work Steve Keen has done building these, these systems dynamic models that, that effectively define what only the, the private sector would look like if it was a, a purely endogenous system with no government. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is, I, I've never, at least in all the research I was redoing, getting to this point, I, I don't know if I've heard any Austrians kind of at least to express, counter in any way, the endogenous money idea. But yeah, you could, in theory, so this is how it would work, right? Again, going back to that house idea, let's run through this entire thing. Just imagine in, in your head some T accounts. I know it's super exciting. But there's no money in the system to begin with, right? So in an okay. endogenous world, there's no money to begin with, okay. right? And, it, and then in, in an MMT world, money is just an IOU, right? There's nothing, it's not a thing. It's just, you know, pencil, paper, and T account, right? That's all that money is, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously, eventually you got to create a currency maybe to allow for easy exchange. But so in, in this world, all we have is, is private banking. And, and I want to buy your house, but I don't have any money to do that, right? And at this point, it's a blank balance sheet, right? So what's going to happen is we're going to go to the bank to ultimately swap the house to me. And how this is going to happen is the bank is going to create a loan. So right now there's no assets on any on the bank's balance sheet, but they're going to create a loan. 
and your deposit at the same time. So mm -hmm. they're going to have an asset as the loan. They're going to have what will end up being your deposit as the liability. Right now, you've got the house. I'm going to get the house, right? So now the house is my asset, but I also have now the, the, the $500,000 mortgage on that house. So that's now my liability. But you now have the $500,000 deposit on your balance sheet. So in that transaction right there, we just created the $500,000 effectively out of thin air. Yep. So what we mm -hmm. would call what we would call money. So yeah, that system can exist outside of government. Nothing stopping that system from happening. If you want, I can tell you the problem with that. <laughs> I'm just saying because conceptually, and again, I'm not it's you're not responsible for everything just like sometimes online in Austria and say stuff that, you know, I wouldn't endorse. So I'm not Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. But I'm just saying sometimes some of the more strident statements of the sectoral balance make it sound as if the private sector literally cannot grow certainly not in the long run without the government having ever growing debt and so i'm just saying that's in terms of the accounting that's not literally true this is more of a secondary argument you're saying in practice when you start taking into account these other factors the stability of the private sector just growing pulling itself up by its own bootstraps is the yeah, issue. It's, yeah. it's not that it's conceptually impossible. Yeah. And just to be clear too, so a couple things, right? At this point though, th there's no no new net financial assets in, in the sense that I'm now in debt and you now have, mm -hmm. I have savings. So in that sense, although we, I've now deficit spent and, and you've got the surplus, it, we're still flat, right? The net financial assets are still flat. And so in society, we want to save. If there's going to be net financial assets added, although we've created money to allow the system to happen, if there's going to be net financial assets, we have a desire to save in a floating exchange rate. And again, you know, floating exchange rate is important here. Someone else has to be doing that. And in, in our instance, it's the government that's going to do that. And I, from a real perspective, in, in real terms, you can have growth. If if I needed a raft and it didn't exist and you made it for me and we did our little balance sheet exchange thing, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we have real growth happening there. But in, in a nominal sense, it's still, granted, we've created money, but I'm in debt and you're in a surplus now. And that's... Uh, and I've argued with some people on this, the claim that in a given system, like the net financial assets have to sum to zero... You know, like in a closed system. So if you include mm -hmm. the government, then it all nets in the only way is if the, you pull the government out. And it's yeah, a yeah. Even there, I'm not sure. But I would say this, that, OK, if I lend a thousand dollars to Douglas, then my household has this new IOU. And so my financial assets went up by a thousand dollars. But now he just went his financial assets went down by a thousand. So the system that includes both of us together on net. It balances and, and so if. And so where I was concerned with is to say things like, well, if I own shares of corporate stock and then the company rearranges itself and becomes more profitable and the shares of stock go up in value, it's not like there's somebody else now who's indebted. But I get sometimes people say, yeah, until, but until you need to sell those. And but by calling it a financial buy, yeah. asset, they mean it's yeah. like the corporation. Yeah. So I, in other words, the difference between debt and equity but okay, fine. So if we're going to if we're going to say what we mean by financial assets, because another thing too is like, what about Bitcoin? Right there, it's not that as new Bitcoins get mined into existence, suppose, mm -hmm. just suppose mm -hmm. that happened to be the money we used. It, that's different from banknotes that are necessarily tied to a loan, just the new Bitcoin. It's not that there's somebody's asset, but there's not a corresponding liability per se. But I think Correct. even there, yeah. you'd call them a commodity or something. Yeah, I, money is a tricky word. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, I would just call that a claim on a solved on a solved equation. Okay. I think is what I would call Bitcoin. Okay. All right. So yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So 
Yeah. I guess. What do I want to do? All right. So when you're talking about, so like I said, a minute ago, or I don't know, at this point, 10 minutes ago, when you <laughs> gave a loophole, it intrigued me because I think strictly speaking, depending on if you're doing it in terms of the accounting, it's just period. If the government and, and foreign sectors are not running deficits, then the domestic private sector literally cannot have an increase in net financial assets. But, and when you're, when you were saying they could do it yeah, themselves, create, yeah, even there, I think you're saying that it's not the net financial, it's just the money stock could go up through. Yeah. But yeah, even yeah, there, yeah, 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 strictly yeah, speaking, creating. net financial assets are still yeah. not growing. Yeah. Right. Because correct. Yep. Is the new, yep. is the banks issue more money defined that in that way? Then yeah, the are going up too. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So let me, I'm just curious what your response, we don't have to dwell on this, but my standard thing on that is to say, all right, again, given how you're going to define the terms or whatever, Mm -hmm. I get that the sense in which those statements are true. And then I'm going to say, so what, that, how does it, so I'm, we're the domestic private sector. The government has run up a trillion dollar debt or $32 trillion debt. And let's say we own all yeah. the treasuries. I know some of them are held for and for, but let's say with the yeah, US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the big MMT insight is to say, instead of just focusing, oh my gosh, the federal government owes $32 trillion, the flip side is, ah, all of our mutual funds and 401ks and blah, 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 have $32 trillion in treasury securities. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. are assets. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I want to say, though, fine. Yeah, obviously, to just focus on one and not the other is goofy. But why would we say on net, therefore, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And now we've got this 32... Because the only way they're paying to know that the Japanese owe us a hundred billion dollars is you could say there's some sense in which that is a genuine net asset yeah. because they're going to have yeah. to do something productive, make cars that we want and ship, ship them to us. Yeah. If the way the Japanese could service their debt was to come and, and rob us and then hand us the money right back, that would be pointless. And yet to say the government owes us 32 trillion, it's not that they're going to babysit or put on an, an opera things that we value it's <laughs> ultimately they're gonna either print it or take it from us through taxes and then hand it right back to us and so if i don't think printing money per se makes us wealthier other things equal i would rather given that we've got a circle mentally around this group yeah, of people yeah, yeah. and we're yeah. owed resources from someone else i would rather be owed to us from people who have to earn it voluntarily rather than they can just take it from me or my neighbor yeah so yeah that's my so go ahead go to town with yeah that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way I look at this, I, I completely agree. And, and in fact, we're in a situation right now where stocks are flying high. There's still a lot of people hurting, right? So it's not creating real wealth in any way. So the the way I look at this, right, though, is I consider myself a capitalist, right? I love free markets. I love my stuff behind me are computers and 3D printers and stuff. Like, I love innovation, right? I want all of I want all of that's that's the real growth that we all want. And the only way we get this is if we have a functioning society. Right? We have to have rules. We have to have laws. They have to be enforced. We have to have a military, right? And so in order to get that, someone's got to come in and say, yeah, look, I, I will do my best to be an, an impartial judiciary. I'll do my best to enforce whatever agreements that we put on the books and I'll make sure and defend the borders and all that sort of stuff. But we need you know, we need to provision ourselves, right? We need to provision ourselves for that then free market to thrive, right? For mm-hmm. it to be able to work, right? If, I think if I recall, you're, you're on the extreme side, the anarchist. The consistent uh, ca- people who uphold truth the, and the, justice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the anarcho-capitalist, <laughs> I, if I recall. The people who it, say but, murder and theft is wrong for real. Yeah. <laughs> so I, if you're at least willing to say, at least grant me that 
to, to some extent, what I, if I, if what I define government is good enough yeah. for you, that government has to provision itself. And then only on top of that, can you have the superstructure that gets built that is private enterprise, right? And so I, 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 <laughs> I want to be clear that I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not against in any way what we would call free markets. And I don't, and, and so to get to the bigger point about numbers just going back and forth, I, I agree the numbers going back and forth don't really matter as part of the MMT point too, is that back in 2008, 2009, the, the refrain was the kids are going to have to pay for this or we're borrowing this from China. I'm glad, at least from what I can tell, you don't mm -hmm. get too many people saying that anymore. At least MMT kind of won one thing. But the point is that in order to get that growth, you have to have this government that can provision itself to allow that growth to happen. And that growth is going to come from the business cycle that is what, what we would call the endogenous money cycle that I was just explaining about how, yeah, I'm going to buy your house and a bank's going to create the loan for that. And that's going to allow that exchange to happen. And the bank is going to assess the risk there. And you know, we're going to let it rip or a company wants to, one company is going to want to create an iPhone and the other company is going to want to create a Zune or whatever Microsoft made mm -hmm. in, in 2008. And one of those is going to win out. One of those is going to lose out or actually one wins out and, and 10 lose out. But in order to allow that constant, that constant growth that at least most of us want, I know there's a lot of slow down the growth people, most of us want, you have to essentially put the necessary fuel in to the private sector to allow that, to allow that to run, especially given the context that we're on a floating exchange rate. Okay. So obviously you and I do have disagreements about the optimal size of government and things like that. So I totally get, you know, someone saying, oh, you, you got to have some government spending because they got to have courts and we got to have a military to make sure mm -hmm. we don't get invaded and all this sort of thing and made a correct for externality. And, and to have decent long run real GDP growth, there needs to be that basic infrastructure. You got to have highways. And, so I, I disagree on those particulars, but I, I get yeah. that perspective. Yeah. But it seems... The MMT camp, certainly in the hands of Stephanie Kelton, where they're saying a lot more than that. They're saying the government needs to run a budget deficit per se, and we don't even need to tell you what it's spending it on. It just there needs to be a constant growth in the outstanding stock of government debt if you want the accounting flip side to be possible of the private sector to have this constant increase in net financial wealth. Yeah. And so, okay, but I think... I'll, I'll let you go ahead, but then maybe we should just jump into that because I think a lot of yeah. as we argue about the yield curve stuff, I think a lot of this will yeah, no, this, this. Yeah, this, this is a good kind of foundation here. Okay, there are there are in, in MMT land there are two cycles that are happening at any time, right? There's this vertical cycle that is the government that is the government spending to us. They call that vertical money, and then there's this horizontal cycle that is we just understand as the business cycle, but it's, it's banks creating loans, right? There mm -hmm. is the rest of the world. We're going to leave that out for now to simplify this. Kind of what the key point is. And again, a lot of the Stephanie Keltons, and I'm not terribly versed in what she has to say, they're still just trying to get people over that hump that there's nothing stopping us from paying for things, right? Right. To then get past that point, we want a, a robust private sector. That The private sector has to be capitalized. And in a floating exchange rate, what that means is that banks need capital, obviously, that they can only get that they can only get in a floating exchange rate where government's a monopoly issuer of the dollar is to have the government spending, right? If that gets removed, there's nothing to capitalize the, bank, the banks. And then the next thing you need is you need income for people as well, right? And you need that income to, to turn over, right? I need to buy something. You need to buy something. I buy from you. You buy from the next person, so on and so forth. And that's how, that's how, the, that's how the economy grows. And if the government spending is removed that cycle now can still exist, but the dynamics change, right? That vertical cycle, 
the vertical money, I'm sorry, the horizontal money cycle, it'll exist for a while. It did from about 96 to 2000, but then the bad dynamics hit in because it's just the way that the dynamics work out. So they are right that we need government spending, consistent government spending. We fell off a cliff in 2022 at the beginning of 2022, and we had a massive market pullback, or pullback, almost got into a recession. Without a doubt, there's a correlation because it puts a ton of pressure on what I'm calling that horizontal, that endogenous, that, that bank, what we call the business cycle. It puts a lot of pressure on that, and, and the internal dynamics just do not allow it to grow indefinitely. Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast, is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys conviction, about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism. And of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. By the way, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 291. If you're listening to the audio, we're going to be looking at some charts here. Either listen and then come back or stop it and go look it up on YouTube. So if you, if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 291, the YouTube link will be there for this video that Douglas and I are to see the charts as well. Hold Plus, up. if you just want to see Douglas's face and say, what? I just got to see the guy who's saying this stuff. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. A, a fellow bald guy with a beard. Let's see. All right. What is actually up here to give you? It's, it's hard to sometimes it's hard to actually get the right data. But what I've done, what I've done here is I've grabbed from the monthly Treasury statement, the net surplus or deficit accumulated that over time. So effectively, I'm creating the national debt here, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm doing. And then I'm adjusting that total by CPI. So it, we're not talking in real terms. And then it's just a year over year. So effectively, we're getting closer to the, the flow, right? So from a, as someone who's trading, I, I really care about the flow. I care about kind of the acceleration. Those are the functions that are going to give me the edge that I think I'm looking for when it comes to, when it comes to trading. But this is half of the, the sectoral balance chart, effectively, that the MMTers love to toss around. Okay. And is this actually the mirror image? The peaks there show when the deficit's really big? Yeah, correct. Because, you know, as an MMT, your deficits are good. So up means right, good. Right, right. <laughs> yes, we know up means down in your guys. You know. <laughs> That's good. Okay. That's good. Okay. So just walk it like, why don't you just take some typical examples and the yeah, gray yeah. bars are recessions, presumably. Yeah, yeah. The gray bars are recessions. Okay. So yeah. So how does this, in your mind, this illustrates yeah. your story perfectly. So just, can you walk us through some of it? Yeah. So the, All right. Viewer. I don't see that my mouse is uh, showing up on screen, but I'll try and highlight the lines. Little thing pops. Following the, let's just, let's following the dot-com bubble, right? We had uh, a surge of spending. There were some tax cuts at that point, right? We had some government deficits grew at that time. And then the way the cycle works is it's we say that the government's counter-cyclical, right? The business cycle is down, the government's going to come in and they're going to, unemployment checks are going to go out and that sort of thing, right? And you have more spending when the economy is doing bad and you have less spending when the economy is doing good. And so what ends up happening is over time, the, the kind of counter-cyclical nature of government spending gives way. As that gives way, right, you know, we have continued growth during that time period, right? Stocks continue to go up, whatever valuation of companies go up. What's taking over and what you don't see on this chart is the private sector. The private sector is now running a deficit, right? We're borrowing money from ourselves to continue the growth. And then eventually you get to this point where you get into a government surplus, in this case, real terms, obviously nominal terms before 2000. And then it's at, at this juncture, 
that the government spending is now essentially been removed and now you're left only with that only with that uh, endogenous money cycle to carry growth because of the internal dynamics there's no way that it can carry growth forever it eventually reaches a point where it can no longer accelerate and that's the big thing it has to continue to accelerate for it to grow if it even if it's still growing but it's not the that acceleration or the growth isn't accelerating that is enough to cause the the bubble to pop as you guys would say and that's exactly what happened in 2008 bubble pops we have a massive we have a massive contraction and then the counter cyclical spending kicks in massive stimulus kicks in 2008 and then we we rinse and repeat and then the business cycle uh, the business cycle starts up again okay so just to make sure i'm getting so that right before the 2008 crisis according to your chart the, the that red line comes down just to about the zero yeah yeah at that point the let me see if i got this right i'm cross referencing it with just standard federal budget deficit mm-hmm. or surplus as percent of gdp so it's true the deficit fell in terms of GDP yeah. from like 2005, 2006 up to 2007. In 2007, it was a negative 1.1. So the deficit was 1.1% of GDP then. Yeah. And that was closer to zero than it had been. Yeah. But it wasn't like they balanced the budget. So the reason on yours have shown that is because when you factor in also that, I guess, what, price inflation, CPI inflation was bigger than 1.1%. Yeah, so you're saying... Yeah, if, if you remember too, I mean, oil was at whatever, $150 a barrel, whatever uh-huh. it was at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is it's not... So the, the deficit per... And I'm trying to paraphrase what I think Warren Mosler said in a recent interview where I walked yeah. through that podcast. So clearly, absent deflation, price deflation, if the government runs a budget surplus, that's bad news from your guys' perspective. But even if the de- if they run a deficit, but it's not big enough to counteract because yeah, the re- general price inflation erodes the real value of the outstanding stock of government debt, and and so yeah, there's those yeah, two factors. So the government yeah. budget deficit not only has to be has to exist, but it has to be big enough to counteract the fact that the outstanding stock of government debt's value is getting eroded in real terms as inflation yeah. rips. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. obviously, if oil is five hundred dollars a barrel, or oil is fifty dollars a barrel, that, that's going to matter. If right. y- y- yeah, r- relative to the relative to the, the savings that are out there in in dollar terms, yeah. Okay, and then I guess also too that means is the outstanding is this true? I never thought about this element of it. Is the outstanding stock of federal debt gets bigger? The deficit has to be bigger. Right, like in other words, okay, if there's two yeah, percent. Yeah. If there's two percent price inflation the size the deficit needs to be to not drain the private sector of net real financial assets has to be bigger if we're talking if the debt to gdp was 300% versus 10% is that right i think if i'm tracking what you're saying yeah i, I think you are yeah let, let me, I, yeah just so i, I don't want to i'll say it again yeah. just to make sure it's not, it's not so much like i'm trying to score a debating mm-hmm. point i just want to make sure i'm getting your worldview we start out from not just a balanced budget but no government debt outstanding like right right after andrew jackson pays off the federal debt yeah, that they're going forward for a while. Really, it's just the federal deficit's the only thing that matters. Is like as long as the deficit exists, then that's going to be net oh. assets going in the. Oh no! Okay. It, okay, okay. If the outstanding debt is like three hundred percent of GDP, then if CPI is just two percent, that's a huge erosion in the gross and outstanding financial assets. So the deficit has to be big. Just to counteract it. So Bigger. in other words, how okay. big the deficit has to be as a share of the economy just to tread water in terms of net financial assets in real terms, it matters how big the existing stock of the debt is, right? 
that the bigger the outstanding I, debt, then the bigger the deficit would have to be? I don't know if I've... I, I think I understand what you're saying. I think I agree. Okay. I'd have to fully think it through. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I said, yeah. we don't need to... I'm not... Yeah. It, it doesn't matter yeah. one way or the other. It's yeah. not if you, if you yeah. answer wrongly, then I'm going to say, aha, and therefore a mate in three. Okay. Uh-huh. okay. I guess the only thing I would say then is, so it sounds like if you suppose that's true, then that means the longer this process goes where there's constant government deficits in the outstanding stock, I guess if the debt to GDP is growing over time, then that means the deficits as a share of the economy also tend to have to grow. Grow, yeah, yeah. Just to, so it seems like it's an accelerating. But why don't I, yeah, here I'm just asking, in your view, does the debt to GDP have to go to infinity in the long run? I don't think it would have to. I, I've never, to be honest, I've never thought about it because okay. I'm, from my perspective, I'm far more, I understand dynamic switch when you get to specific situations where the total, the total size of the public debt to GDP, the, the dynamics of what happens in the economy, especially in the financial economy, change uh, when, it, when it's high enough. We see interest mm-hmm. rates becoming inflationary, uh, higher interest rates becoming inflationary, that sort of thing. So dynamics are changing. I, I'd have to go back and, and okay. think through what you're saying. Let me rephrase. Yeah. Not yeah. that it goes to infinity, because that seems like you obviously would want to not commit to that without thinking it through. But in general, do you think that in a healthy growing economy, there's a tendency for debt to GDP to rise over time? Your picture, or you just you never really thought about that? Yeah, I just said never. I've never really thought about the okay. need for that right, to happen one way or another. Right. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay, <laughs> sorry. All right, I know my MMTs are probably like, yeah, there's something on, but again, this is this is just me because I. Okay, like I said, I'm not. I guess yeah, it does have implications. Like it sounds, oh, see, it's unsustainable. But okay, fair enough. I mean, it could. So, there, there's nothing stopping it. I, I mean, if that if that's there's no dynamic at play. Like there's a dynamic at play in the private sector side of things that would mm-hmm. stop that from occurring. So it looks like if I'm reading it right. Going into 2020 on your chart there, there should not have been a recession, right? Everything looked great. That it was, that was zooming way up. Okay. And but, would you just say it was because of the lockdown? So even though technically that's billed oh, as a recession. Oh, yeah. And it's something I said on Twitter too. An, an asteroid could hit any time and we'd be in a recession. <laughs> that, the that, reason, but it, this ties yeah. into the yield curve stuff because in yeah. the summer of 2019, the yield curve did invert. And so I actually was predicting there'd be a recession. Yeah. Yeah. And so I technically was right. But some people were saying you just got lucky because COVID forced them. I was saying, yeah. So yours, your the flip side is your according to your metric, there should not have been a recession in 2020. And so someone could say you're wrong, and you would say it's not my fault because COVID. The reason that we have that official recession is because the government made everyone stay home. If if it hadn't been for COVID, there would not have been a yeah. recession on the books. I, in I think we might have been getting close anyway to a recession at that time period. I don't think we we're quite there. There's still you know, ample ample spending at that point. I want to. I'm going to share another chart too. So okay. this is this can put a little bit more context. So particularly, just focus in on what happened heading into 2008. Right, we we had this kind of deficit that was starting to starting to contract. And what I'm going to share now, hopefully this works. Share this tab instead. Yeah. Right. So this data comes from the BIS, effectively what we would call pri- private debt to GDP. And I've done mm-hmm. the year over year, so you can get a little bit better feel of the flow here. But again, we can continue to get growth. We see is growth, stocks going higher, profits going higher, that sort of thing. We continue to get to see growth if the private sector goes into debt, it's, right? So you can get private sector debt as well, right? The money creation cycle that we just talked about. And notice that as things were getting tighter in 2008, we were actually seeing that private debt to GDP increase, right? So this means we're getting this acceleration that I was talking about. So this is now banks creating loans that allow people to buy. This gets seen in GDP. This gets seen as growth, right? This gets seen as profits, 
this is growing. So even though we're contracting here on this side, we're expanding, right? So this is, this is the offset that's occurring. It's allowing for the expansion. What sucks <laughs> for everybody is when this eventually by its effectively its own weight tanks and then we go into and then we go into recession land. So when I say maybe even in heading into 2020, we were getting close. We were seeing a bit of a contraction there. It was a bit of a concern in 2018, 2019 that we might see that we might be heading towards recessionary territory. Because if the contraction of the private side offsets is enough to even offset what's happening on the public side, you can still get a recession, right? And so that's why I would distinguish what I'm showing you right now, I would call this a business cycle recession, right? So in 2020, we didn't have a business cycle recession where we saw massive contraction from the private debt side, right? We just, we had a recession because the government decided mm -hmm. to unemploy everybody, right? Is this true that you're saying the sectoral balance stuff, it gives you the big picture, but there are other dynamics at play. And so it's not, in your view at least, that if the government starts running budget surpluses, that there, a recession kicks in the next week, there could be a little margin of error Correct. because the private yeah. sector could effectively internally, yeah. certain subcomponents of the private sector are in big growing deficit yeah. to counterbalance. Okay. Yep. But that's unsustainable in contrast to the federal government is able to run up there's nothing like they can, their debt can go from up to 32 trillion now. And it, that's not like everyone's biting their fingers. And there's going to be a huge collapse. Whereas the private sector, when the private debt gets bigger and bigger, yeah. like as a share of yeah. the economy, eventually yeah. that's unsustainable and there's a crash. Yeah. Is, is that exactly. roughly, is that? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's a pretty okay. good summary. Yeah. All right. And then that, that would explain too why in the Bill Clinton years and when they had the surplus, it went on for a little bit before the, the crash. Yeah. Right? Or right in, there, in the right? 20s. Yeah. Exactly. The Coolidge administration's running surplus after surplus, and it was only eventually that there's the 29 crash. It's not that, the, like I say, the, the fiscal quarter after the first budget surplus, then all of a sudden there was the Great Depression. It was a series of budget this, surpluses. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Really, really, this cycle that I'm showing you is maybe even more important in understanding the dynamics at play for the business cycle, right? Mm -hmm. This is really what we internalize as the business cycle okay. more than anything all right. else. All right. Okay. And then, and that ties into, I'm not familiar with his work too much, but I, I like, I know who Steve Keen is and his views. Yeah. And they're, they're incorporating, is it like the work of Minsky? Yeah. If you don't mind, let me, let me just give that. Here's the gist. Yeah. You, yeah. You, go right? ahead. We get that, you get that dynamic uh, that we were just talking about the, or a few minutes ago about me buying your home, right? That dynamic takes place. That's real growth. And this is something that, this, this is where as an MMT or someone in the heterodox camp, I'm even going to disagree with the Keynesians on this, right? We're not loanable funds people. We actually think that when banks create loans, that's actually creating new money and that shows up in demand, right? That there is a dynamic at play. So mm -hmm. how that ends up working, if we just create in, in our mind a little circuit here, right? A little dynamic at play. And all we take is workers, the, the widget making factory and then the bank, right? So we just have this private sector. What ends up happening is the widget making factory will go to the bank and get a loan, right? So now we're getting, we're getting money creation, we're getting money in the system and we'll kick out some widgets. They'll go buy whatever materials they need to get these widgets. They're going to kick out the widgets. Some of that money is going to go to some of that needs the, the money needs to go to the workers and the workers are going to go and buy the widgets and you're going to get your nice little spending cycle to, to happen, right? The income's going to be flowing. All is good. 
And in order to then continue, what, what we would see as growth is that you need to continue to grow that overall, what we would call kind of private debt, right? This endogenous debt cycle needs to continue to rise. And it does. You can create this in, in, in a software. I'm simplifying for the sake of the, for the sake of the podcast, but the cycle can continue. All the outputs look right. You get growth as debt increases in this. Again, there's no government at this point in this, mm-hmm. in this economy. And what ends up happening is the dynamic that makes this unsustainable is that effectively the workers are picking up the tab for the higher debt bill and lower shares of overall growth, right? So their income relative to overall growth begins to shrink, right? They're picking up the cost of the larger and larger debt tab that is being increased by, we'll call it the manufacturing side, right? And this creates the dynamics that are, are necessary to you get to the point where in order to get growth to continue, you and if private debt, the total private debt to GDP level is high enough, it needs to continue to accelerate, right? And then at that point, what ends up happening is if you get to that kind of that peak, it can no longer accelerate. And this is what they call the Minsky moment. And usually what ends up happening is banks have also found themselves, instead of just applying loans for supplying loans for productive means, they've also now started to buy assets to bid up those assets that are on their balance sheet, right? Pure illusionary growth. They start to bid up those assets. Eventually, either those assets drop or this thing doesn't accelerate and the entire thing collapses in part because the workers no longer have enough income to continue to buy the widgets and the simple model. You end up getting a collapse. And so that's really, in terms of the business cycle, that's the important thing that finally kicks in if the government removes government spending, the government at any time can just come on in, right? I mean, can buy the widgets and put them on a shelf. I'm not saying that's a good thing per se, right? It can just go and also give more income to the workers if that's what they that's what the policy prescription is. But in this system, again, going back to that, it's important too because it's a floating exchange system. That's important. This is how the money cycle works and what the kind of Minsky Steve Keen dynamic is that, that kicks in here. Okay. Like I say, I would have said to the folks at the in this beginning, you and I are not debating here. I just want to keep pushing each other to know what's our response on certain things. I think I understand your view there rather than me sitting there and trying to tackle it or to come up with some zinger. Let me, I think the most productive use, by the way, can you go to the top of the hour? Yeah, I've got Which all the time. Like yeah, whatever 40, you need. Okay. Yeah, whatever you need. Right, yeah, for the folks at home, that's about 40 minutes from now. So just so you know. Okay. So you can pace yourself mentally. All right. How long do I got to listen to these two? All right. This is so this episode. Really? I, I bet. I think, I, Bob, I was going to tell you, man, Friday afternoon, two bald guys with beards debating economics. We should have done this pay-per-view, man. I think we could. Uh, this, this, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me just, I'll say this right now. I wonder if some of this is, we each have different theories that largely overlap in their predictions and that was what I meant when I was saying Newtonian versus that yeah, for, yeah. for a lot of everyday observations, Newton's laws seem to work just great. But then in certain extreme cases, like a little too close, close to the, the sun, light yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they break down in which case Einstein's theory is more general. Okay. Likewise, so here, assume for the sake of argument that the Austrian theory of the business cycle is correct. Okay. Just as the, what would the world look like? Typically, you would have the central bank slash bank, private banking system would be flooding the market with cheap credit. Interest rates would be pushed to artificially low levels. Entrepreneurs would start expanding lines in an unsustainable fashion. You'd get a boom period. And what happens in the boom? Unemployment comes down. Everyone's got 
jobs, rate wages are rising, so tax receipts go up. Government might increase spending, but not as much as the tax receipts go up. And so you would see the deficit shrink and or even flip into surplus. Yep, yep. And then eventually they would, for the, the boom ends for various reasons, they slam in the brakes and then there's a crash. And then, oh, tax receipts fall off a cliff. And there's, in modern times, like the automatic stabilizers, like unemployment insurance and all that kind of stuff. So government spending tends to go up. And so you'd see the deficit explode. So even if, the, if we just assume at the outset yeah, that the Austrian yeah. theory is correct, in practice, it would often look like when the government's deficit shrinks and goes into surplus soon after there's going to be a recession and that the recovery is associated with the surplus turning back into a big deficit. Yep. Right. Yep, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then the question is, okay, so can we find some cases where yeah. there was like an exogenous thing? And the reason the government flipped from deficit to surplus was not because of the in normal business cycle, but because there's an exogenous thing. And I would say, yeah, there's the case of Canada, for example, that yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. more familiar with. So I know Can, I've yeah, this before. Yeah. Canada's let me good. read this just for yeah people. And then I'll let you respond, Douglas. Right. So for Canada, they got into trouble in the mid nineties. They had been running large budget deficits and then they were in danger of their debt getting downgraded. The wall street journal in an editorial in January of 95 declared that Canada quote, has now become an honorary member of the third world and the unmanageability of its debt problem. And now I'm just reading from my econ lib article. Obviously, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 291 and I'll link to all this. But here's what I said. Yet the Canadians swiftly solved this crisis with serious reforms. In just two years, from 95 to 97, total federal government spending fell by more than 7%. And that's absolute terms, folks. That's not like cutting the rate of growth. Literally, the amount of dollars they spent was 7% lower in 97 to 95 fiscal years. I, I think it might be calendar years. The budget deficit of $32 billion, which was 4% of GDP, was transformed into a $2.5 billion surplus. There were some tax increases, but the ratio of spending cuts to tax increases was about 5 to 1. Canada's federal government ran 11 consecutive budget surpluses, causing the debt-to-GDP ratio to plummet from 78% in 1996 down to 39% in 2007. I'll stop reading here, but they did not have a recession. In fact, they outperformed all the other G7 nations in this period. Even And by the way, this was late mid to late 90s through the 2000s. The U.S. had the dot-com crash. Yeah. So yeah. it would have been understandable if the U.S. pulled it. But no, Canada managed to not even have a recession, even though the U.S. went into one in this period. So I'm going to say this is clear-cut. This is looking at the orb, Mercury's yeah, yeah, yeah. wobbly orbit. This is yeah. traveling near the speed of light. This, is, this should not be, have happened according to MMT logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I got two answers for you on this. Okay. The first one is just what I could see from the data. The first thing is we talked about this in terms of how we view the business cycle as a whole. In order to get growth, you're going to need an expansion of private debt. You're going to need government spending, or you're going to need, by that, in order to get those net financial assets to allow the fertile ground for growth to grow, or you're going to need the exports, right? Okay. So Canada was a massive net exporter of oil at that point. That was one of the things I found. God, I swear I saved this chart somewhere. I can't pull it up right now, but I don't think you'll... No, you'll, yeah, their you'll push, currency fell. Yeah, they, yeah, 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 I know yeah. they're not... So, that's so they're, they're not exports okay. went up. The next thing too is they also started, and you said it started in 95. Is that what you said? From 90... So I, maybe 96 was the first. Okay. From 95 to 97, spending went down. So I think maybe 96 was when the first cut kicked. Okay. In, you get what I'm saying? What I can tell is their, their debt to GDP ratio... I'm sorry. 
private debt to GDP ratio leveled out at about 142 heading into the end of 95 and then started to increase from there. It was a bit of a bumpy ride, but Mm -hmm. it, it began to go up from there and continue to accelerate into the great financial crisis. So you have... Obviously, this is like the same case for Germany, right? Germany exports a lot and they don't run massive budget deficits because they're getting the net financial assets coming in from the exports, right? Canada, same thing. And then on top of that, too, we just saw a massive (laughs) swing higher in oil throughout that time period going going forward as well. And I I think they have a lot of exports of oil. So that that offset any damage being done that would have been done from uh, public spending, which you would call austerity. And so that's at least how I would account for the growth. Okay. All right. And and that that's like I said, Krugman did a thing. And and folks, I'll link to it here again, BobMurphyShow.com says two nine one. I went through the all that stuff in terms of it, that's not an embarrassing like your response, I I get how from your framework, Douglas, mm. that's what you mm. would say. From ours, it's likewise too, like other things equal the private sector expands. Yeah. When government spending shrinks, the private sector's yeah. got to fulfilled both domestically and, and why wouldn't it also s- Ship more to foreigners, other things equal. Yeah. So that's not surprising. And I could come up with interest rates fell too, which on a loanable yeah, yeah, funds yeah. market, that's what you'd expect. And so then yeah, that yeah, makes. Yeah. yeah. So Canada wasn't loanable funds want, at that point. But yeah. I'll, I'll let it be. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let it right. be for now. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. want Canadian assets as much. And so that would make the Canadian currency fall. Yeah. Which then promotes net export yeah. growth. It, okay. From both of our frameworks, that's how we. Okay. Fair. So the next thing I would point out too with Canada is they did eventually, uh-huh. at least the financial sector blew up in 2000, 2008, heading into 2009. And for the most part, they had a few times where maybe they, I'm just looking at the TSX now, the, their stock exchange, but their stock exchange was effectively flat for a decade, right? Where the US started to see, at least, and again, I realize it's not the real economy. And you also saw the exact same thing play out in Europe. Europe's a very good test case because they had the Maastricht Treaty, which completely suffocated what we call the fiscal side because they just, I think their public debt to GDP could be like 60, 60% or something. It's completely unsustainable from that perspective. So yeah, you, you got this big boom for about a decade heading into, heading into 2008. And you look at all the countries that practiced austerity afterwards, or not even afterwards, but just didn't have the what you guys would call the government printing they were anemic for a decade. And again, I know the stock chart, so I'm just going to, I know their GDP isn't the same, but you know, you look up any of the countries in Europe, they never hit new highs in their stocks until some of them are just finally getting brand new highs for the first time going all the way back to the 2008 high because of the stimulus response, just globally that we saw from COVID. It really is that private debt cycle that did the damage and there's just not anything offsetting the damage that, that continued to be done. Okay, so is this true? You would say, yep, we see what happened there with Canada, and that's not an embarrassment from an MMT perspective because they were able to, number one, do the net exports. Yeah, yeah. And so that partly filled the gap. So nobody's denying with the sectoral balance that if the government stops running deficits, you could fill the gap. The, the, pri- the domestic private sector's net assets could continue to rise if you can fill it with net exports. Any that, one country... Yeah moving towards fiscal austerity, government-wise, that's an out. Obviously, as Krugman's point was, that can't be a general solution yeah, for not around the world because we can't all net exports each other. Yeah. But yeah. okay, yeah. fair. That's yeah. how the accounting works. And then if I also understand you're saying, but they were sowing the seeds of problems down the road that looking at their yeah, yeah, yeah. private debt was going up and yeah. then that led to problems down the road. And so it, it was a festering problem. So yeah, we, this is where I'm going to agree with you, right? This okay. is really where I'm going to agree with you in, in the Austrian mindset. It, this private debt cycle 
can be very problematic and you can absolutely get artificial boons to occur. Yeah. What you guys would call misallocation of resources, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's not good because the end of it's going to end up being bad. And, and I agree that the private sector has the, the capacity and the tendency to end up in that situation. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, yeah, I, I, the Austrians are onto something here that they sense. But what I'm saying, my, my overarching argument would be in a fixed exchange endogenous money world, it's not dropping the interest rates to zero that causes the artificial boom. It doesn't, the, to a certain extent, the, the banks, no one cares what the interest rate is. It's not, it's not a signal the, the way that I, I see the Austrians understanding it in an endogenous money world, right? The, the signal is always income. That, that's always the signal. The signal is, can I make this loan? Yes or no. The decision tree is, does this person have the income to pay it off? And do we expect down the line that this is going to, this is going to continue? And then the only other factor that would override that is, does this bank have the necessary capital structure to incur potential losses? As long as those two things check out, that loan's going to get made and you're going to get what, what we would call, what we would end up seeing is growth. And it, it has nothing to do with the, it has nothing to do with the interest rate dropping to zero. And then just to riff on this point, if, if, if I'm right and the private sector savings is, the S&P is the private sector savings, right? Then what you can do is you can actually just take the S&P, divide it out by the, the federal government, and you should get a pretty darn close to straight line with maybe one distortion. And the big distortion would be the dot-com bubble that we saw, right? The massive growth in private debt. And that's exactly what you end up seeing. When you divide it out, you get this. So what I'm saying is take the market cap of the S&P or some stock market, right? Divide it out by the uh, federal debt at that time. And you get, you get little cycles, but you get this massive distortion that happens during the 2000s. And that is what the Austrians sense as the bad, <laughs> the, the, the setup for the bad times. But it had yeah. nothing to do with interest rates because interest rates aren't in, in a floating exchange environment, aren't communicating what, what they would in a fixed exchange rate. What's being communicated is you're getting this massive boom and we all look richer because we're all going into more debt, right? Someone is going into debt who's paying my income. I'm going into debt to pay the next income. And it looks like our incomes are going higher, but they're not because we're all in debt to each other. It's just one big debt cycle. You take away the government spending that can offset there, right? So that's the income that can come in and offset that. You take that away, and eventually, you're right. You're going to get a bust, absolutely going to be a bust. And we saw that in 2008. And then some countries, the U.S. mainly decides, okay, we're going to, we're going to. I, I still, I would agree that I think the the stimulus post Great Financial Crisis was too low, but relative to the rest of the world, we we did the most. Okay, uh, so one just clarification. I don't know if, you, if this is on your radar, Douglas, but for the listeners too, even among the Austrian school, we got to be distinguished between the people who are 100% reservists versus those who are okay with fractional reserve free banking. And so the, like the people following Rothbard's line, I think would say, no, the private sector wouldn't be in, in our world would not be able to do what you're talking about, that they couldn't just grant someone a mortgage the money would be like gold that was literally my, the yeah, money stock grows yeah. and demand deposits at least would have to be backed up 100% that kind yep. of thing. And so you wouldn't see those. Like, but whereas, yes, with the ability of fractional reserve banking to operate, then you could see these booms and busts. Okay, so just that's one little thing. Also, I don't know if this would warm your heart, Douglas, but there was a period where from 
2010 to like 2017, I was going around and giving a lot of talks to people explaining like what the heck just happened with the housing bubble and mm-hmm. what's going on with QE and this and that. And a chart that I hit upon that people liked was I, it was a, the S&P 500 index against the Fed's balance sheet. And after 2008, they fit hand in glove until Trump got elected, in which point <laughs> the S&P jumped up when, you know, that. Yeah. And so yeah. I was saying that it definitely like just the market's priced and they throw yeah. it. They thought Hillary was going to win and then he's yeah. better for business. or Yeah. So anyway, and so that so my point was to say, oh, no, it's QE. Like the stock market boom is not because Obama's got such great policies. This is all the Fed. So anyway, yeah. for what that's worth, I don't know. I'll give it. I, the Fed really isn't affecting the stock market at all. Q, QE, if anything, took away income and dropping interest rates to zero takes away income. This will actually get to the, the reason we're talking is at the mm-hmm. end of 2022, everyone thought we're going to go into a recession, right? But I, here I am, and there are a handful of us on Twitter who are like, "Hey, the government's about to print out an additional trillion dollars this year and give it to rich people." Right. That's, you know, it's 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 UBI for the rich. The government's about to do this in 2022 or 2023. And uh, there's you can't get a recession that way. Right. OK. Yeah. Let me say. So this yeah, is a good yeah. segue. That, so, folks, you might say we talking about I don't remember. And that's the way Warren Mosler put it, too, on that recent podcast that I walked through, folks, that let me sorry, just try to note, make sure I don't forget to link to that. Where he was saying, yep, the. Federal policies are going to give this huge handout, as it were, income to or stimulus to people who tend to be pretty wealthy. And this wasn't debated in Congress. They're just doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what do you talk? What do you mean, Douglas? We don't. What are you talking about? What yeah. UBI? So, so to what yeah, do you yeah. refer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the Fed comes in and in their infinite wisdom, they raise interest rates because they think yeah. for some reason that's going to slow demand, whatever we're going to that's going to tackle. That's going to tackle inflation. The what they're doing. Yeah, there's an element to that that is true. We can get into that in a second. But what they're also doing is they're going to increase the additional interest income that has to be paid on the new bonds that are going to get issued. And so they start, yeah, I think, what, March, April, they start finally kicking rates up. But by the end of the year, it was very clear. I actually, I was wrong. You can go back. You can go back like 2019, 2018 or whatever. I never thought the Fed would actually do what they did. I, I'm still surprised to this day that we are in this situation, having this conversation. I thoroughly thought, there are Fed guys. You mean just because how rapid the increase was? How rapid it was that they would actually think that this is going to stop inflation and <laughs> do do what they think that it's going to do. There are multiple, even uh, Krugman has said, if the private or if the public debt is large enough, Higher interest rates are going to be inflationary. I, I, I say that only MMT gets this. Actually, you know, I stole it from the mainstream guys because even they understood this, that this is going to be inflationary, that you're paying a higher coupon on these bonds. You're paying a higher interest. We call this the interest income channel. You're paying more money on these bonds. And even if, one, that money is going to go to rich people. So one, they're going to spend it. Or even if they save it, they're going to invest it in other assets, right? It's still going to juice the, uh, the, the financial sector. So they're going to do this. The other thing that's happening right now, too, which, again, it just I can't believe the Fed has gone through what they're doing. But not only that, they also now pay banks interest on their reserves. So not only do the bonds get interest, but the reserves get interest. And that is this is, this is a big difference post great financial crisis immediately. Obviously, they had ZERP and zero, zero interest rates, but that is a direct capital injection to the banks, right? That goes immediately to equity. And it's into the hundreds of billions now that they've done this to the banks, right? Mm-hmm. So you have more income to people. You have banks whose capital ratios are now higher, right? So they have, they have the ability to take on more risks. 
man, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, this is not recessionary. This is uh, expansionary, it, regressive, terribly regressive. I don't like giving money to rich people <laughs> just for the sake of hopefully maybe laying off poor people. That seems really messed up. And maybe maybe we can do the, the epic handshake and agree that high interest rates, the government should just get out of that business entirely because you're just giving free money to, to rich people who are only going to do whatever it is they want. And they have enough power and all that sort of stuff. They, they don't need this. But yeah, it's, to me, it's, yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, all my models say, hey, this is going to cause a stock market boom. And, and as it's turned out, that's what's played out. And every single day, there's a better than expected. And that's a big thing. Everyone's expectations were, oh, recession, 100% recession. And that's how I found myself talking to you on Twitter because I'm like, hey, this guy, this guy called out MMT and said right, recessions, right. MMT's right. And that's how the discussion started. So okay, that's how I me, see what, what played out. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me make some statements. I'll, I'll try not to be controversial right now just to summarize. But yes, as of late 2022, the Fed's been, quote, raising interest rates in an effort to fight inflation, or at least that's what the official rationale is. And that's, that fits in with the normal narratives. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, price inflation was out of hand in the 70s. Volcker comes in, jacks up interest rates, breaks the bracket, back of inflation, and blah, blah, blah. And we need another. And so Powell's, I got to do what I got to do. I might plunge us into recession, but by God, I'm going to get the dollar under control and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the Fed jacks up interest rates, and the yield curve inverts. So from an Austrian point of view, I would say, yep, this is typical stuff. If you look at the past pattern of yield curve inversions, unlike Krugman's explanation, which is all about expectations, no, it's that the short end is where the lever is. And so when the yield curve inverts, it's because the short end yeah. zooms above the long yeah. one, and that's why there's the inversion. And so that's very consistent with standard Austrian business cycle theory that the Fed slams on the brakes, and then it causes that causes a recession soon mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. so it's not a weird pattern from an Austrian point of view. But you're saying, hang on, though. So people as of late 2022 saying, oh, recession's imminent now, yield curve inverted, the Fed's jacking up interest rates, they're going to cause a recession to get inflation under control. And guys like Krugman were arguing with Larry Summers, basically like the doves saying, oh, let's let inflation rip for a while. It's better to have a weaker dollar and more employment. But they were all in agreement that the Fed raising rates was going to cause a recession. Yeah, yeah. The MMT people were saying, no, you guys aren't getting it. It's how to raise interest rates. You know who cares what the level of the interest rate is? The in interest, uh, the the issue is income flows, and at the higher interest rate, given how much now outstanding government debt there is, as that rolls over and gets refinanced at the higher rates, the the amount of total federal spending just to service the interest or service the debt, interest payments on yeah, the debt is yeah. going to go way up. Yep, and so that's the sense in which you know. So yeah, in theory, they could cut the defense budget and all the other things to keep the level of spending the same, but we all know in practice they're not going to do no, that. Really. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the Fed raising interest rates is, quote, forcing the government to have a much bigger deficit than it otherwise would have. Exactly. Had interest rates exactly. remained low. Yeah, exactly. And also the Fed itself is directly, in a sense, creating new money out of thin air and depositing it into the bank's checking accounts with the interest on reserve program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your view, that's the issue. Like, you guys are just totally missing... It's not yeah. the level of the interest rate or the yield curve per se. Yeah. The issue yeah. is look at the flows. Okay. So that's, you're okay with all hey, that hey, so hey, far? Yeah. yeah, it seems close. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, historically, you know that the yield curve typically, inverted yield curve typically does forecast an impending recession. This time you're saying so far, like something else would have to happen. So what, why historically did those two tend to go together, but you're saying this time is different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. Okay, let's go back to our, our two charts and you get those back in your mind, right? So what is the Fed doing, right? 
MMT says the Fed is is the monopoly price setter of the interest rate, right? Uh, and and just just the way that it works, the way that that decision, you know, so the Fed comes out tomorrow and they say we're going to set the Fed funds rate at ten percent, right? That's what they come out to do. What's going to happen is you're absolutely right. That short end, right? That the shortest duration bonds that are going to get, uh, you know, Treasuries, uh, those are going to those are going to have massive volatility. But it takes time for that to actually transmit down to the the thirty year. And the reason for that is who the hell knows what the Fed is going to want to do with thirty years from now, right? It, it, you know, so and then on top of that, there's like a convexity issues. You know, it takes time. So it's absolutely, you know, what we see is the yield curve inversion. Is what effectively is what's it's what the Fed is doing with the short end, right? It's, it's what they're doing with the short end that's causing inversion or, or reversion um, ultimately. So what what ends up happening is you get this big uh, you get this big fiscal boom after a bust. Let's say, right? Let's go back to post two thousand eight. Big fiscal boom. The Fed thinks they're doing the banking sector a favor by setting interest rates at zero. They're not, but it doesn't matter. It's not affecting anything because the fiscal side is being supplied by the the, the countercyclical spending that's happening with the government side. That begins to kind of sow the seeds for, you know, for growth, right? Eventually what ends up happening is you have that uh, we're again we're going to call it the endogenous cycle. That endogenous cycle starts to take off. Now, Given the level of private debt and given just that that is what, you know, generally we understand is the business cycle when that takes over. So eventually you get you get the fiscal spending to, to give way. That business cycle spending starts to kick in and that gives the signals that generates the signals to the Fed. Hey, things might be getting uh, inflationary. Um, employment might be getting a little too a little too tight. Right. Um, growth might be getting just a little too hot. So those are the things they're going to look for. And they're going to see this kind of growth cycle begin to begin to play out and say, okay, we can't get this, you know, we can't let this thing get too hot. I don't agree with what they're Mm -hmm. doing, right? But that's just what they're Mm -hmm. seeing. And so they're like, hey, we're going to raise, we're going to raise interest rates, right? That's, that's what we're going to do to try and, uh, to try and and get, uh, get control of, of this so it doesn't get out of hand, right? So they start raising interest rates. Now, as we discussed, that cycle, that business cycle is, it doesn't care what the interest rates are. It, it's just going to do what its natural state is, right? It's just going to it's going to continue to increase until it can't anymore, right? It, again, in a floating exchange rate, banks don't care about interest rates. They they're not communicating anything to the banks. All they care about is the income, and so eventually that bubble pops. I mean, it just it does by its own weight. Especially it it'll be exacerbated and get to a quicker point if the government pulls spending, which it oftentimes does because taxes come in and you know that reduces the the overall level of spending. They're going to come in higher because um, growth is going to happen and some of that endogenous money is going to end up as taxes. So that'll you know kind of drain the the net financial assets and then eventually you get uh, what looks to be a, a pop coming. And this is where. Uh, this is it's it's really this is why I say and you know some people this is this kind of going over their head on Twitter but it's not the inversion that is predicting anything what what's really happening is the Fed is saying whoa we might be getting you know they're they're sensing the end of the business cycle that's just naturally happening we're going to put interest rates to zero right because we mm-hmm. don't we don't want this to completely collapse it's actually that putting interest rates to zero I should be doing this I should be going down it's putting that interest rate to zero that actually then you know, puts the nail in the coffin for the recession. That's when we finally get the recession because everything that we're seeing right now from the interest rates, you know, pushing higher, everything that we're seeing is massive growth. That all gets reversed, right? The higher term structure prices, that flattens the um, the turnover uh, that's necessary in that endogenous cycle. 
that slows down. Everything reverses course. The the additional interest income that was there that gets taken away, and then it's it's game over. You, you know, we're in we're in recession at that point. So it's really the Fed bringing the interest rate back down to zero. That that you know we all that's actually kind of sowing the you know, putting the final nail in the coffin for that for that recession to finally take place, and it's breaking the back of of that you know that banking uh, that banking cycle. Okay, let me restate that. So you're saying. You know, historically, when we see a, um, a yield curve inversion that tends to, quote, predict an impending recession, really what happens, it's, you know, that it breaks below and then it comes back up and then there's the recession. So you're saying it's not so much the yield curve inversion, it's that the, when there's an inversion and then going back to, quote, a, you know, a normal upward sloping yield curve, that's the the issue. Yeah. Okay. And it's yeah. and specifically, yeah. it's because the Fed. It's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. The Fed's worried. Oh, oh, did we tighten too much? Let's bring interest rates down to zero yeah. or bring them way down. It's only relatively recently that they've been bringing them down to zero. Um, let's bring interest rates way yeah. down in order to be nice guys, and um, you know, put the punch back out. Yeah, make make yeah. sure the business. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. We're not so make, much sure worried about cycle. inflation right yeah. now. We want to make sure we're, we goose employment, and so let's stimulate the economy by bringing interest rates down. And in the MMT framework, no, that's the last thing you want to do when the economy is soft is then cut interest rates because now you've just stifled income flow. It, it, yeah, it, I, I wouldn't say it's the last or, thing. I mean, okay. I would love for them to bring interest rates down. To, to be honest, I, I mean, we, we we need we need interest rates at zero. I, I'm not like for what the Fed is doing. I, it's 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 really asinine what they're doing. Um, but if it's not offset by more government spending, right? If that additional interest okay. income yeah, doesn't come from right, somewhere, enough. that 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 is going to be a, okay, that is yeah. going to be a problem. Given yeah. everything else staying roughly the same, if they just other things equal, cut interest exactly. rates to zero. Yeah. That's exactly so right. Exactly, you, you're not exactly. advocating in the yeah. ideal MMT world. Interest rates are kept permanently high. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, yeah, yeah. given that's your view, and we got nine minutes here. Um, again, <laughs> it seems like we're both. So you're, okay, I guess I got one, one thing to ask is, and then we're, where we're going to end up is our predictions and, you know, and not so much <laughs> yeah, absolute, yeah, yeah. this yeah. is going to happen. And if it doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. then that yeah, means we're wrong, but more yeah. like what yeah. sort of things can we say ahead of time that would be out? That's kind of where I want to go. So if you want to just have mm -hmm. that ruminating, mm -hmm. we'll do like, like in the last five yeah. minutes, but for right, but I have one question here is, um, if that's right, though, so the way I would handle it, and here this isn't like specifically Austrian, I think this is just standard, you know, mainstream economists who are aware of the yield curve thing, mm -hmm. is I think they would say, well, well, look, the normally when the the they want to do what's called a soft landing, so like interest rates have been low, and then inflation starts getting out of hand, and so they start raising interest rates, you know, like in the middle of the dot com, or, or sorry, the housing bubble years, you know, two thousand from two thousand three onward, they were raising rates just about every time they met. Um, and they're not trying to cause a recession. They're just trying to have a, a soft yeah. landing and then to, you know, and yeah. the only reason they start cutting again is because the economy is definitely showing signs of weakness. So it seems weird if you're saying, yeah. no, it's the cutting that causes the recession because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why yeah. they don't, you, you get what I'm, you get what I'm asking. Like, why yeah, yeah. is it they, they let, made a mistake? Let me, or? let me give you, <laughs> let me give you my 60 sure. second response. So one, one of the things that I've done, a lot of models I build, and it's really important when you build uh, 
some of the stuff that, that I've been piecing together that you get this uh, this causality link, right? Right. You, you know, because I mean, essentially what, what we're all saying is, yeah, we all see what's happening. Right. But what is actually sure. causing yeah. what? Right. That's what's the mm-hmm. most important thing. Right. So some of the tests we run and some of the tools we run and it's really important. So I, I build one of the things we do is we build a lot of deep learning models that take this information and make these kind of regression predictions. Right. But you got to make sure that there's a causal link there. Otherwise, it's just going to lie to you. Right. I mean, it's going to tell mm-hmm. you what you want, but it's going to lie to you. So how do you know what's causing what? How do you how do you build these deep learning models? in a structured way to say, yep, learn from this because this is causing this, this is causing this. And these are a lot of the, I have a thread uh, maybe six months ago that I put out um, that, that showed a lot of this and you can use various statistical tests and listen, you're going to get stats people that are saying, ah, he's not, you know, he's not right. He's not, yeah, I mean, I, I get, I, I'm way oversimplifying this and, and probably not applying this in the best way that it can, but it's the only tools we have, but you can use statistical tests like Granger cause uh, like convergent cross mapping, uh, graph neural networks are really showing some early promise in, in some of the stuff I'm doing to sense out, given the you know the complex dynamics at play, right? Given the fact that there's a ton of nonlinearity here, is there a causal link that can be seen here, right? Can, can you statistically detect this causal link, right? So I mean, I can I can confidently say that uh, it's you know government spending that then causes what we would call the business mm-hmm. cycle, right? The, the 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 endogenous cycle, right? And 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 you can you know you can look at Okay, it is the endogenous cycle that's actually causing the Fed, right? So the Fed is looking out, right? So in other words, what I'm saying is the Fed's looking out and seeing the business cycle shrink. Can you detect these causal links that are there, right? And my argument would be, and this is how you could falsify MMP, MM, MMT. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. You know, how could you falsify the Austrian business cycle theory? Right? One of the ways you could falsify MMT beyond just like you know getting out the T accounts and saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, look, you got your accounting wrong is you can run these statistical tests and see from a macro perspective, is this actually happening? Right. Is, is there, is there, can you, can you detect a causal link? And so to, you know, to the, to the, to the mainstream, I would say, I know you guys have had people working on the exact test that I've been doing for the last 20 years. Cause I got guys who are telling me that, you know, the fed does this, but they can't find the causal link. If they would, they would absolutely show it. Right. But you know, for 20 years, they haven't been able to show any evidence that this interest rate thing works the way that they do. They're running tests. I know they have probably more powerful uh, your resources at hand than I do. And if it exists, they would just publish the data, but they don't. I've done the work on my end and I see it happening exactly as MMT explains and this data comes out and uh, you, you can test it. And, and is it perfect? You know, who knows? But at least it's there, right? I mean, it's a piece of evidence that is there that corroborates with what the MMT kind of story is. And so to get to that causal link thing that I think is really important, you know, that, that's kind of one of my big arguments. A lot of the work that, that we've been doing is understanding where that causal link is using kind of these statistical tools and saying, yeah, it, it, hey, does this absolutely prove MMT is right? No, but it at least proves that what you expect to be there is there. OK, let me combine this with, you know, I know what you said in your episode on this stuff. See if, I, if I'm uh, distilling this down correctly. So in the standard mainstream view and maybe Austrians, too. The idea is, oh, the Fed's sitting there, it changes interest rates. That has this huge causal impact on, like, the state of the economy. And, like, oh, if the mm. Fed jacks up interest rates, plunge into recession. And if it lowers interest rates, it causes a boom um, with, you know, with high rising prices and whatever. And you're saying, no, because if we do, like, Granger causality tests, it doesn't seem like the federal funds rate, for example, has any impact on the business cycle. It's... It, it, we can't detect. I mean, right, we can't detect right. it. I, I get, maybe it is there, right? Maybe it's there in so a way that you just can't see. If anything, see. it's more like but, the yeah. Fed is just passively setting interest rates based on the feedback they're getting from elsewhere. And 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they literally just ask market participants, where do you okay. want the interest okay. rate at? That's <laughs> I mean, I mean, frankly so, what they're doing. Yeah. But, that, but, but now that seems weird because I thought, but I'm going to try to like answer on your behalf. It looks like you're contradicting yourself because I thought two minutes ago you were saying um, it's, it's not the yield. What causes the recession after the yield curve inversion is that the Fed foolishly lowers interest rates. But really, it's not the lower interest rate per se, because you're, what you really mean, though, is because yeah, that yeah, in yeah. turn means then government spending is lower than it otherwise would need to be. It's going to go down in there. Yeah. And okay. you're seeing a contraction of that so your point business is, cycle and they're just exacerbating. To the extent, yeah. if at all, that changes the Fe you know, Federal Reserve changing interest rates has any impact on the timing of the business cycle, it's operating through the, the government debt and then interest payments on the debt because they're OK. It, yeah. Yeah. Because under a floating exchange okay, rate, it's all, right. all about income. Fair yeah. enough. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll go yeah. first, then you go as far as, so. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Even though I was infamously wrong, if you go to my Wikipedia entry, it was like, I was born, I lost a bet to Paul Krugman, and then at some point I'll die. Those are the three things it'll mention. Um, <laughs> and by the way, folks, I didn't lose a bet to Paul Krugman. I lost a bet to David Henderson and Brian Kaplan. Krugman ran victory laps on it. Um, so I infamously was wrong about price inflation as a result of QE. But actually, the Austrian business cycle theory performed well throughout all that thing, right? It was, um, you know, they brought interest rates down to zero, and then there was not a bust, and now they start raising them again, right? So as long as at some point soon there's a bad recession, Austrian business cycle theory emerges from that unscathed. Some of us might have been jumping the gun, you know, warning, oh, QE is going to be, but strictly speaking, there's a standard theory is they lower interest rates, it causes a boom, and then they raise interest rates and there's a bust. So the fact that, you know, you guys were crying chicken little for years when interest rates were held at zero, actually, that's not an embarrassment to Mises, right? Even though some of his disciples may have fumbled the ball in terms of explaining it. Okay. The yield curve clearly has inverted. It's the most inverted it's been at least, I think, since the 1980s, you know, the, the 70, late 70s one. So I have been saying publicly, I'm not, you know, going on more on the record here, that, yeah, I think... Looking back, so they might not know it in real time, but looking back, the NBER will say this recession happened, start, began either in late 23 or early 24. And now I'm going to say, what? suppose that doesn't happen, what outs am I giving myself right now? I mean, yeah, if the government did very pro-growth things like they got rid of the income tax or if AI advances were just through the roof and, you know, so that it would, it would have to be something big like that, though. So I will admit, if there's not okay. something big like that, that everybody in fairness could say, yeah, that's the kind of thing Bob would have said in his worldview would help the economy. And there's not a recession in late 23 or early 24, then at the very least, I'm doing something wrong, right? You know, I'm not going to say Mises yeah. is wrong yeah. necessarily, but certainly the way I've been using him and trying to teach it to the public, that's incorrect. Okay, so I will, I will say that. Yeah. You're saying there's not going to be a recession. So suppose there is one, what would have to change between now and then that allows yeah, you yeah. to say, that, well, no, I no. couldn't have known that was going to happen on, on April, on April. If we, if we have another, uh, if we have another, uh, uh, <laughs> shutdown of, uh, half sure. the economy, right. and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even asteroid hits, uh, outstanding. I mean, so, some of the things I, I, I are real threats, you know, maybe U S gets involved directly in a war or something like that. Right. I mean, you know, uh, but assuming, assuming, you know, we're, we're just all mm -hmm. doing our thing and, and there's no major interruption. Um, the, the way we would find our 
the way we would find ourselves in a recession by say early 2024 is if oil went to like $250 a barrel overnight or something like that. Um, it would have to happen very, very quickly. I, I think I think you could see enough pressure from oil uh, getting high enough. Uh, something like that could happen. Um, if 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 uh, in your framework, that's because you know, for, then net imports would go way up, and so that would be like a drain on. Yeah, and actually, I mean that's actually a really good point too. I, I mean, I, <laughs> it's really just because that would that would really force CPI to go higher, right? I mean, it would just be in you know in real terms, our deficit spending is quite quite a lot less. Uh, high oil is is you know effectively a tax on on income, right? Because uh, but we are also I think right now still net exporters of oil, so um, I, I think we'd actually maybe get some some income from that. But oil would be the biggest threat. Otherwise, unless there's not you know unless government spending doesn't cut off. Uh, all of a sudden, for some reason, or unless the Fed, you know, if the Fed decides to go to zero tomorrow, who knows uh, what, what would end up playing out after that? I, I think, I think, very, you know, maybe over the next year or two, you'd see a, uh, a slowdown in, in overall deficit spending that, that could cause a recession. But assuming oil doesn't go to you know two fifty a barrel, assuming the Fed doesn't completely reverse course and drop to zero, uh, or unless uh, the, the the fiscal side completely shuts off, we're not going to get you know we're not going to get a recession. And okay. if, if those three well, things, let me are, just push you. I want you to be yeah. more specific because if the world plays out as I'm predicting, let's say a bad recession really does start in November, mm-hmm. the Fed would, would see that coming. That, right, that- data would start coming. It's not like it would everything would be great and then it would just fall off a cliff. Like it would start getting worse. So the Fed would start cutting. So that's what I'm saying. Like, to me, that's cons- like, I would like, would they have to cut yeah. a lot in your view? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that the fiscal, it yeah, seems yeah. weird so if you're going to say, really oh, well, off. yeah, there's yeah, a recession, yeah. but the Fed cut interest yeah. rates. It was like, well, yeah, but that happens every yeah. time there's a recession. And, so you're never going to be wrong. And, and I'm, I'm making an assumption, too, here that, that I, I think we're on the verge of that private debt cycle to start to kind of kick off. This is truly unprecedented. I mean, we, we are in a uh, the last three years have been so unprecedented. We've never had this specific cycle play out. Right. Because in 2022, we, we almost had a recession. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the trick that I'm pulling here. We kind of had a recession in 2022. Right. But for the first time ever, instead of having fiscal spending drop the way that it did, and the Fed cut rates with it. They actually raised rates, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's like that's the trick that I realized is, um, you, you know, the Fed is going to kind of do this because of sensing, you know, sensing inflation, right? So I mean, it's so unprecedented what we're what we're seeing because normally that you know that business cycle is is taking off and carrying the weight now, but it hasn't had to. So at some point it will carry the weight, and at some point it you know it, it will do its own cycle and, and roll over. Um, so I. It, it, we would need the fiscal side to completely pull out, if you will, and then allow that bank cycle to uh, to tumble, and uh, and then that would cause the recession. And I, I mean, the only way I can really see that taking place is if the Fed drops to zero all of a sudden. I mean, that interest income will just kind of continue to uh, just kind of continue to 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 rip. Okay, but then this last thing I'll say, just to, for further clarification, according to your view, though, they shouldn't have to drop right as long as things keep going as long as the federal government doesn't foolishly in your view slash spending elsewhere because wow these interest payments are really killing us we gotta you know cut the defense budget or something yeah yeah yeah. yeah. even though everyone might yeah. be waiting like oh they they kept they raised rates the world's about to end right but no the employment data huh and and then you, the mmt people the only ones every month saying yeah we told you guys we told you guys there should be no reason that the fed would have to start slashing rates yeah. I mean, they, they might start sensing inflation. I mean, it'll be interesting to see as like the FOMC minutes come out. They might start sensing inflation has come down enough. Obviously, they, they didn't. I mean, they hiked uh, they hiked on Wednesday. 
uh, at this point, but maybe they'll sense that inflation is where it needs to be or getting close. And so maybe they'll, but they're never going to drop to zero at this point and maybe slow. And I mean, the other thing too, my, I, you know, here's a guess you can call me out on later for, but I, I do think we're going to start to see over the next month or two, uh, CPI surprise to the upside. Uh, not that it's necessarily going to start firing off, but you know, the minute they see core CPI surprise to the upside, I, I think they're going to continue to hike. And uh, and that'll just continue to the cycle to go forward. And and you know from there, I don't I don't see how we get into a recession. I, I don't see how the, the 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 business side contracts enough to offset the the public side, even even with the higher rates. Okay, all right. Well, I think yeah, I got it. And, and the part of this, the function of this episode is more like for us just to get our worldviews out there, so the listeners can evaluate. Yeah, not so much that a year from now we can decide which of us has to. Well, know, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. But okay, I think we. And if the data changes, just just to be fair, if the data changes, I'm going to change my mind, right? right. I, I mean, if I see something right. in the data, I, I you know, I, I I'm not, I mean, I, right now I'm you know long stocks, all that sort of stuff. But if the data changes, I, I'm not stuck to this view. Uh, but I mean, that's that's the view. Okay. That, that uh, I'm sorry, gonna, let me. You know, I'm gonna. Yeah, I kept saying this is now the third time I'm saying my last remarks. No, it's fine. I, I got. No, I got. Well, I, I got to go good. get a, a babysitter. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so okay. the here's what I don't want to have happen is that. You were running victory laps saying people pointing to the inverted yield curve when, and I know I had a, a stupid thing where I, I set a date when I shouldn't have, but in terms of the standard yeah. thing with the inverted yield curve, it's not like it's like we're checking our watch and geez, it's, it's past schedule that no, like even just the standard historically yeah. when the yield curve inverts and then when the recession kicks in, if it happened, that, and that's where I'm coming up with the late 23, early 24, yeah. that, that just, you know, it's not like I keep making excuses. That would be normal. And so I'm yeah. saying- if you're running victory laps because, oh, you guys predicted recession and there's not. And then there ends up being a recession right on schedule. And you say, well, that's just because they cut interest rate. And that's what I'm saying. Like, well, yeah, if everything played out the way an orthodox yeah. yield curve believer would have said, yeah. you would expect it. OK. And then near the end of 23, yeah. things start falling apart. The, the Fed starts cutting interest rates, realizing, uh oh, unemployment's going up. CPI's coming yeah. down. Let's start cutting. And so then if you said, well, that's because they cut interest rates. That's why. Like, that would seem like, well, what do you think was going to happen? You get what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 all fair. And my 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 response to that would be run the statistics, run the analysis, see see what sort of you know causal links you can find, and if they're there, and I'm not seeing them, you, you know what I'm saying? Then yeah, you can say yeah, this is actually how it played out, and this is why it played out, and here's the you know here's the link. The zero rates cause a boom cycle, that sort of thing, and you know you can prove that out. But you know again, I'm I, I, at this point I haven't seen that. Would you agree though that it, it would have to be a pretty like a the Fed would have to cut rates more than would seem warranted by the data in order for your theory yeah, to be yeah, resurrected. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, something that could absolutely happen is we could get into a war and the Fed cuts rates and, oh, you know, okay, for yeah, whatever yeah. reason, the government decides to stop spending on something to offset the war costs, right? I mean, you, you know, and that would absolutely cause a recession at that point. Okay, yeah. Yeah. all right, yeah. fair enough. All right, I think yeah. we've got enough yeah. down that people can... Right on, man. All right, right so folks, my guest this week has been Douglas Robert. Uh, Douglas, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'll, I'll see you April 1st at the end of uh, Q1. Right. <laughs> I'll talk okay. to you April right. 1st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Take care, Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com. <laughs>